Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. We are doing a... I don't even know what to call it kind of episode. It's going to be a lot different though, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We have Brian Kane from Prodigy Hockey on the podcast to talk to us about youth hockey and not even just hockey, but youth development. Uh, Brian grew up right outside the Rochester, New York area uh, where he played his youth hockey, played a couple years in the USHL before going to UMass Amherst, who is in the Frozen Four for his college. Uh, after that, he started from the ground up uh, a couple company called prodigy hockey and prodigy-hockey.com where he does a lot of youth hockey development in the chicago area all the way from the youth to the pro levels uh caner has uh some pretty 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 good clients at the pro levels guys like i don't know alex debrinkit patrick kane jonathan taves how you doing um and uh does an awesome awesome job and and i'm indebted to caner because uh, when i left coaching and and didn't really have much going on i kind of joined forces with him and did some stuff with prodigy hockey so he was the first guy to allow me to work with him in in that capacity but uh before we do get to brian let's bring in my partner jeff lavecchio and before we get to you, Jeff, though, I do have some stuff for you because uh, a couple guys that a uh, couple guys that I know that listen to the podcast say you're getting a little soft and uh, not so much about like you know murdering and, and savaging food. You're, you're talking about like sunny days down there in St. Louis, so maybe you can come with a little better intro for us today. Well, first of all, whoever said that is dead to me, <laughs> and second of all. I was literally just eating six hard-boiled eggs and a bagel as we started to talk today. Third of all, I've been in the gym every day at 5.45 a.m. This is busy season for the kids, so all of my energy and all of my intensity is focused on my guys now. But um, whoever So what said are we, that, chopped liver or what? No, you get, you get like 50% full throttle. So like it's still, that's still like 100% of normal people. But you're at like 50% of my energy. So um, what's up? And whoever said that, you're dead to me. Well, you're, you're kind of dead to me right now. I need your 100%. Let's get her going well, here. My, I'm kidding. I'm, hey, I'm kidding. You got, my, you got my 100 of what's in the tank. I'm not at 100, 100 of 100, but I'm at 100 of what's in the tank. Does that make sense? No. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> so we got Brian on the episode today. Uh, Brian, what's going on today, man? Not too much. I uh, had some lessons this morning. Then got to some video, and I'm uh, chatting with you guys. And appreciate the opportunity. I love it. I love it. Well, Kaner, um, one of the things that I love about you, and and why I love talking to you about hockey so much, and Jeff, like this guy, when you want to dive deep into something, Kaner's the guy to talk to. Like the amount of thought and the amount of research that he does, and and like one of the things that's also really cool about you Kaner is like when you talk about hockey development you're you're also doing like a ton of research on you know youth development and other sports and you're doing a lot of research on motor development and and there's just so many different things so like what before we kind of get into your journey a little bit here like what makes you excited about development like why are you so into it and and uh and able to get so in depth on a lot of different things yeah, you know what? It's um it's kind of evolved as I've as I've went along. Um but mostly I just I really enjoy the relationships with the players and I want to be as prepared as possible to give them 
an opportunity to, you know, facilitate their growth. Um, so I don't, I want to, and I really enjoy the learning process overall. So I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I want to research it. I want to learn more about it. Um, and that's the fun part for me is kind of, you know, continuing to evolve my coaching and my education on my end and then relaying that to my players. That's something I really enjoy about what I do and feel very privileged to do too. Excuse me. That's awesome. Well, you do such a good job. I've been on the ice with you with, with players before and, uh, you know, as soon as so this episode that we're doing right now is going to be a lot different i haven't mentioned it yet so uh mark dennehy who i know brian you know very very well but now he is uh the head coach of the ahl binghamton devils uh former head coach of merrimack and uh him and i have kept in touch and and he's an awesome guy just one of the best guys in hockey and uh he called me this week and he's like tof you gotta watch this YouTube video of it was at the um, Sloan Sports Analytics Conference that MIT puts on, and they had a debate between Malcolm Gladwell and David Epstein, who are two of like the leading researchers when it comes to youth development. And uh, you know, most people know Malcolm Gladwell for Outliers um, and his ten thousand hour rule. And uh, David Epstein was a guy who um, kind of challenged Malcolm Gladwell, and we'll get a little bit of uh, of that into it in a little bit. Um, but but Kaner, this was right up your alley, and so immediately after I watched it, I, I texted you and I was like, "Hey, have you seen this?" And you were like, "Have I seen it? Duh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and you, um, you know." So you you love to dive deep, and we're going to do a little bit of that here today. But you know, before we do that, want to talk a little bit about your journey. You went to UMass um, and and had a great four years there. Um, but talk to us a little bit after that about how you started prodigy hockey, why you started prodigy hockey and, and kind of what it is for the listeners that don't know. Um, yeah. And really briefly, Mark, then he recruited me to go to UMass Amherst and what a great guy and a uh, great coach he is. Um, and then happy to see he's continuing to have success and not surprised that he's um, also investigating these sort of things. He's very, very detailed what he does. Um, so yeah, you know what, um, after college, I had a chance to go over and play overseas in the, the France league, French league, excuse me. Um, I got another concussion while I was over there. So that kind of ended my career. I had a few of those, which was unfortunate, but you know, sometimes these things happen and new opportunities uh, come up. And, uh, funny enough, I came back to Chicago to work for your in-laws, uh, the Greenbergs, um, who have been an amazing family for me, um, giving me some outstanding opportunities. And while I was, you know, working for, for them with Ben Franklin and, and a little bit of uh, work with Ira's business, you know, I was getting the hockey itch, you know, within a few months. So I started to kind of, you know, analyze, you know, why, you know, I, I didn't believe that I was a very good college hockey player. <laughs> so, and, and I really struggled in juniors too. And up to that point, I was a pretty, you know, I would say I was a higher end of my age group. Um, and I played on the under 18 USA team and thought I was on this trajectory to, to play at a really high level. And, you know, I had, so once I got to that junior level and, and had a little bit of success, but, you know, more failure than success. And then college kind of, you know, trickled into college as well. I, I really wanted to investigate, you know, why didn't I, you know, what was wrong with my game that didn't allow me to transfer, you know, translate my success into those levels. And what are the things that I needed to develop, you know, whether that was earlier on in my career or, you know, during that point to, to have more success. So that kind of led me on a journey of exploration to figure out, okay, what, what is going on with, 
you know, certain guys who don't make it, why don't they make it? What can we do? You know, what can I do to help them that maybe I didn't get at that point? Um, you know, so that was kind of the, the genesis of prodigy and just doing a lot of research and, and a lot, you know, trying a lot of different things, failing at a lot of different things at that. And, and then that kind of led into some lessons and some small groups and, and I got an opportunity at CYA. So that, that kind of started my coaching journey and I haven't looked back. I love it. It's uh, it's really, really uh, a fun endeavor. When you were playing and you said you were kind of struggling or didn't feel like uh, maybe you were reaching your potential, were you doing different things to try and bring that out of you? Or did you wait until you were done playing to start kind of learning and, and trying different things and looking outside the box? You know what? I, I was very much at that point too, trying to figure things out. Um, and frankly, I probably was too focused on that and it got in the way of me being all like just in games, especially kind of settle in and, and get into that flow state. Um, I was very always thinking, okay, you know, a little bit too much about the future of the past instead of being in the moment, um, in practice and games. And I think a lot of it was, psychological. Um, but then, you know, off the ice with my training and things like that, I felt like I had great opportunities there. Um, but you know, it was really the, some of the things we're probably going to talk about today with the, the video from Gladwell and Epstein, you know, anticipatory skills, reading the play, um, being in the moment, um, thinking a step ahead, more of those hockey sense type of skills where I was working a lot of my skills, which my, you know, hard skills were, you know, stick shooting, skating when in essence, I should have been working on, you know, patterns of the game and, and reading and trying to figure out how I can be a step ahead. Um, which, you know, in the summer you can spend a lot of time on those, you know, isolated skills, but I wasn't able to trans when I was working on those things, I wasn't able to translate it to, in-game success the way I would have liked. So I guess my, my focus was on things that maybe weren't what I should have been focusing on at that point, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, you know, it's a lot, I feel like a lot of people struggle with, you know, almost, I don't want to say trying too hard when you're in a slump, but do you know what I mean? Like you think you just overthink things when you're in a slump, when a lot of times it's just, Hey, let's just be in the moment here. And, uh, there was a kid that I coached at Cornell. He's playing the AHL right now. And, uh, he was one of those kinds of kids. And and I remember him coming into, to the video room and be like, Hey coach, let's watch some video. Like we got to watch video. I got to see blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, dude, are you a good hockey player? (laughs) He's like, yeah, I think so. I'm like, good. I'm glad you know that. Now go play hockey. We don't need to watch any more video. Like, you know, and you just can kind of, yeah, (laughs) but you can kind of see it. Like, you know, every time, like even when he comes back to the bench, you can just see that like internal thing going on in his head, just like thinking and thinking and thinking when at the end of the day, like hockey is a fast read and react type sport. So if you get inside your own head and you're thinking too much about what you need to do instead of just doing sometimes like that's, would you agree? Was that something you think that you kind of dealt with as well? Oh, so, yeah, so much, and you know, breathing and and trying to take in what's being in the moment more consistently instead of in the future of the past. That was my big thing. And Mike Buckley, who was our goal goalie coach at that point, now he's with Pittsburgh, I believe. He actually um, gave me a book. Um, what was it? Oh man, I'm forgetting the name of the book now. But basically, it talked about self one and two and d- dug into some, um, inner game of tennis, psychological. 
Enter Game of Tennis. Thank you. Yep. Um, it's, it talked about some of these things, and that kind of led me, again, that was one of my first introduction to some of this stuff. Um, thank you, Mike. He was great. He was a great coach. Um, and I started to apply those things my senior year. It felt like I was getting a little bit of momentum, but, you know, I didn't get that till you know, mid-season, you know, so I was starting to try to apply those things. But that was the biggest thing for me was in the moment – just letting myself play, not worrying about all these other things you just really can't control. I like that. I like that. I, I definitely think that whenever I would get into, you know, quote unquote slumps or something, it was when I was like trying too hard and, and yep. thinking too much. And then Tolf has said this on the podcast many times where he would say to kids like, why are you coming to the rink? And they're like, mm, to get better, you know, all these answers, answers. And he's like, well, hockey's fun. Like, first of all, have fun. And like, whenever I get in a slump, I'd always be like, all right, like make practice fun for myself. Every time I score yeah. Selly, like, and chirp everyone else and like, make them like have fun too. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm having fun and I'm working hard and doing the right things because I'm not thinking. I kind of like was thinking too much, you know? So I get that. Yep. Totally. All right, guys. That's a good intro to Kaner. Kaner, you're a good man. Now I want to get into the meat of this uh, of this podcast, and um, I'm really excited for this. So bear with us. Uh, it's the first time we've done something like this, but you know what I did from that uh, that debate between Gladwell and Epstein. I actually went in and clipped a, a bunch of clips um, that I'm going to play for everybody, and then after I'm done playing the clips, the three of us will talk about it, and I'll give a little bit of an intro. But a lot of this has to do with um, just youth sports. And, and uh, youth hockey will obviously is what we'll be probably talking about, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper. So um, the first thing that I wanted to do is was give a little bit of an introduction here, and then I'm going to let uh, Gladwell and Epstein do that for us. So here's the first clip that I'm going to play. This is David Epstein. Um, he, uh, we met because I was reading his previous book called Sports Gene, and he devotes several pages to attacking my work. And I, and I, I read the attack and realized actually that he was correct. And so we became friends. So I would like to let's talk. Uh, let's start by talking a little bit about your new book, which fascinates me. Um, and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the kind of uh, question that you're, the paradox that you're trying to address is that maybe the best way to excellence at X is not by doing X. Is that fair? I think that's fair to say um, not by doing X as narrowly and specifically and early as possible. Yes, yeah. eventually, of course, you have to do X. Uh, but yeah, I think that's the case. Let's start with the paradigm with which you start the book, which is the two, two of the greatest athletes of our age, each of whom represents a different way of thinking about this problem of how to be great. That's right. So the first one is Tiger Woods, of course, who I think is probably the single most famous example of athletic development or maybe of expertise development in the world ever. Um, and Tiger Woods was very unusual, of course, as a kid. I mean, he's there. If you read Earl Woods' book, there's pictures of Tiger bouncing on his palm at six months old, and he started golfing before he was one and all these things. And that sort of became the model um, from which we extrapolate to like anything that people want to get good at. And, and part of the argument that I make in the book is that golf actually turns out to be like a really horrible model of almost everything else that people want to learn in the wider world. Um, 
but the other athlete I look at is, is Roger Federer, who is certainly as well-known as an athlete, but his development story is much less well-known, where he was did an incredible array of sports, mostly in a very lightly structured environment, if structured at all. When he wanted to focus on tennis, his mother wouldn't allow him to focus on tennis, had to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer. And so he was like years behind many peers who were already working with like physiologists and nutritionists and focusing in. And you know, that doesn't seem to have uh, hampered his development. Yeah, to say the least. All right. So that was uh, kind of like an intro to what they uh, were talking about. And, uh, you know, a lot of it had to do with, again, uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his Outliers book talked about the 10,000 hour rule uh, about deliberate practice and how important deliberate practice was and, uh, and things like that. And, and uh, Epstein kind of went back at him and said, no, it's not necessarily the best thing to focus on the 10,000 hours and doing X to get good at X all the time um, and, and talks more about unstructured play and things like that. So, um, Kaner, why don't we start with you? Kind of what were your thoughts on that that intro and, and just, you know, from having seen this before, um, kind of take us through it to start. Yeah, well, I think it's very important information for parents to see because, um, you know, it goes and you may play some of this moving forward, but they really go into the, uh, Tiger Woods story and how, you know, we're drawn to more of this dramatic sort of story versus, um, you know, being these, say these stories where you have a, a, a breadth of a lot of different sports that you play as a youngster. And then when you get to 16 or 17, now you're kind of focusing on one sport moving forward, which is more like Roger Federer. It's not as sexy, right? Tiger Woods being on, he was on some talk show as like a two-year-old, I think, you know, and he's hitting balls and it's an incredible story and people are drawn to that. So when they see that parents, see that, they're like, Oh, well, that's the model for, for my son or daughter to achieve excellence in a sport. Um, and with the Roger Federer example, I think that's a much healthier and, you know, when you talk about physical literacy and, and having a nice sense of your body and, and development moving forward. And then, you know, for most kids, right. You don't know at that, you know, an age like seven, eight or nine, what you want to sport, you want to play really. Right. So you should be trying to in, interact with a ton, right. And, and get play soccer, play football, play hockey, basketball. And what the research is saying, and I, and I believe the research that Epstein was referring to was Jean Cote's um, research that was done on a number of um, expert performers in different domains and like talking to their families about what they did as kids and moving forward and more, more of them were of the Roger Federer um, model versus the Tiger Woods model. But I think it's, it's, I think we hear and, and Gladwell actually goes back and saying, you know, he was wrong on that. And that 10,000 hour rule, you know, is a little bit misconstrued, I think, especially within more dynamic sports like hockey or, or soccer, basketball. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you talked about that they actually talk about on here um, is just like the dramaticness of Tiger Woods, right? And and I think that's yeah. something that we see a lot today, specifically, you know, with social media and stuff like that, is, you know, in hockey, you know, you see the 14-year-olds and the 15-year-olds, and that's what everybody talks about because it's dramatic, right? It's something that yeah. is so outside the box and outside the norm and, and things like that. When in reality, you know, the studies came out. 
the average age yeah. of people that are committing is 18 years old and the average age of a, a freshman is 19 to 20, you know, but because 14, 15 years old is dramatic, that's what we, t- and, and we're guilty of it too on this podcast. You know, that's what people talk about more than, yeah. you know, what's actually happening. So, you know, I, I think it's amazing that Gladwell, that's one of the things that's really cool about this whole thing is Gladwell did this whole big book and the 10,000 hour rule is kind of like common nature now. And, and people talk about it all the time. Time and how important it is. And he's gone back and he said, wait, wait a minute. I, I actually think I'm wrong. And that's where this whole kind of debate comes to. And uh, it's really, really interesting. And, and we'll get uh, get to it. But Jeff, do you have any thoughts, you know, on this? Yeah, I mean, since we're talking about this, like in relation to hockey specifically and other sports, yeah, practicing is awesome and practice is perfect. Or when you practice something, you get better at it. But there's also a point of diminishing returns when it comes to like biomechanics and like movement in your joints and stuff. If you're just like, all right, my goal is to have the hardest shot ever. And all you do is shoot pucks all the time. Well, like your joints are going to break down sooner or later from that repeat. Cause like our body isn't made to move that specific way. So like, there's going to be a point of diminishing returns where you might actually hurt yourself. And on t- like, I have this happen with, uh, with one of the kids I train actually, um, he got cut from a team two weeks ago. And ever since then, he's been determined as hell to get better. And that is awesome. However, he's been stick handling and shooting so many pucks that he came in two weeks later. And he's like, my wrists are killing me. Michael, like, well, what have you been doing differently? He's like, I'm stick handling forever at night and I'm shooting 500 pucks. And this kid is, uh, he's an old five, like, and he's a smaller guy. He hasn't gone through puberty. I'm like, your joints cannot handle that yet. Like we need to get in the gym, build up your muscles, do all these other things that will synergistically help your shot get better. But you can't just only focus on your shot because there's other things you can do that will make whatever your goal is to get better at, you know, use these other things. Like we always talk about, use other sports, do hand eye drills, do, you know, work on your sprints to get faster, work on your strength to get faster, work on your sprints on the ice to get faster. You don't just only sprint on the ice and that's going to make you better. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that actually goes into the next clip that I want to play. Um, and that's, you know, this is going to be about just uh, how important diversity is. Um, when again, a lot of, you know, a lot of this debate has to do with specialization versus not specialization and stuff like that. And, and this is going to be a part of it and how important diversity is to uh, a kid's activities. So here we go. What, what should, what should an optimal athletic development trajectory path look like if you would like if you're if your interest is in producing a world-class athlete i mean what it looks like i think early on if we're talking about like most of the team sports anticipatory skills early on should totally focus on physical literacy doesn't matter if it's a sport or not like teaching them how to use their body basically um whether that's outside whatever it is expose them to as much stuff as you possibly can because they're also going to if they focus in on something they're going to have to do a lot of work so you're going to want them to like it I think from what I know of it, an ideal trajectory was sort of Esther Ledetska, who became the first woman to win two different sports at the Winter Olympics, at this last Winter Olympics, where she wasn't focused on teenage categories. She still plays, she won in skiing and snowboarding. She still plays uh, beach volleyball and windsurfing and just did this incredible diversity of both team and individual sports, gaining all this incredible variety of skills. And then you can learn the like sports-specific stuff more quickly once you've got those skills, right? It's like, it's, it's a little like language learning in that way. I want to be careful about the language acquisition research because some of it I think is like kind of shoddy but one that I think holds up is people who like grow up bilingual they may be delayed a little bit in showing certain 
with language skills, but if you then give them like a fake system of grammar, they will learn that language better than someone who's only monolingual. I think this gets to one of the underlying premises of why like facing these physical problem solving situations in different contexts is important. So it's called, there's like a huge body of literature on this, of the transfer of skills, right? And if you give people whatever, math problems or naval threat simulations, if you give people similar situations over and over and over, on that day, they will master it and look great. Whereas if you give other people all these like mixed up environments, they'll look terrible and they'll come out saying, I learned nothing. And if you bring them back a month later, the people who think they learned nothing and had this incredible, you know, diverse experience will perform better on everything, including the thing that the other people only studied for that one day. So they're developing this, like, this, these, these base abstractions that they're then allowed to mold to new situations. It's called far transfer of knowledge. So in, in, or in math, it's like instead of learning a procedure to solve a known problem, they're learning how to match a type of problem to a strategy. And I think that's very similar. There's a huge body of literature on this, more in cognitive skills, to what's going on with the perceptual expertise of athletes and why it's important for them to face this incredibly diverse um, array of scenarios because they're building these abstractions that they can then flex to new situations. Yeah. Because that's what they want. They want knowledge. When you're specializing the kids, you're teaching them how to deal with sort of known situations usually. But what you want is someone who has these capabilities that can adapt to anything that's thrown at them, particularly things they've never seen before. Yeah. All right, Kaner. This is right up your alley, buddy. What do you got for me on that one? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a great discussion. And when you talk about like deep learning, right. I think what a lot of coaches subscribe to today is kind of like very explicit, like do this, this, and this. And what they're talking about is giving someone, you know, well, just think about hockey in general. Like when you're really, you know, three on three, two on two, and even us now that we're, you know, past our prime, we're playing men's league when you're in the moment, time kind of flies, right? But you're trying to achieve a goal, right? So solving problems within achieving that goal is, is implicit and you're not really thinking about things you're doing, but you're trying to get to that goal and you're having to deal with a lot of different problems within that. So that's what they're talking about, right? Having to problem solve and be adaptable in, in situations and, that's going to lead to longer term. And then when you involve and you're doing a number of different sports that have a number of different movement problems that you have to solve, right. That's going to lead to a, a physical literacy and what they call like a palette. They, I think they say later in this, you know, you have this palette of options or you, you've, you've built this breadth of um, problem solving across different situations that are going to allow you to be able to adapt in, in the moment. Uh, you know, unconsciously deal with some of these things at higher levels. And when you're just focused on one sport or one isolated movement in a sport all the time, right? That's especially like with hockey or basketball or some of these sports, like it's just the game is so much more complex. So you have to, you know, you can do some isolated work, but you gotta, you gotta move towards some of these, you know, a two on two or a three on three, where you have to engage with these things a lot more. Um, I, it's, you can really go down the rabbit hole, um, with, with this stuff, but, um, I really loved the, the discussion. And I think the, you know, from my understanding to this point, you know, they really nail it in that explanation. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that I liken that to the same way that my philosophy is in the gym. And I think it's the same for hockey and it would be the same for any sport or pretty much learning anything. I mean, I look at it as a pyramid, you know, you periodize things. So the base of the pyramid is wide and long. So that's your general um, knowledge, your general, you know, with this case, movement and things like that, your general skills that are very broad. And then you have to learn those. And then as you go up the pyramid, it gets more and more precise and more to the, to the actual point to a specific skill, but you don't just go and learn specific skills or specific things first, because then you're missing out on all the other things that when you have to actually deploy that skill in a real game where it's read and react, you won't be able to, because you won't have the knowledge base of how to set it up, how to move, how to function, reading, reacting. You'll only know that like very specific one thing that you focused on. So you got to do like the base of the pyramid first, then move your way up. So then you can also in the heat of the moment, go from up to down to where you're doing something specific, but now you need to throw in a different movement. And now you're adding in more movements that you learned previously. If, if, if that uh, explanation makes sense. You, you always you have make like, sense, Jeffrey. Sorry. You always make sense. Go ahead. <laughs> well, Brian. I believe, I believe diversity is a wooden ship used in the <laughs> civil war era. <laughs> Go ahead, Kaner. Well, I was just going to say, like I played football and basketball growing up, you know, organized and just, you know, in the backyard. And I can't tell you how many, like when I think back to it, how many different moves I did in those sports that I tried to transfer over to hockey or just did it, you know, without even thinking. Right. So there's just, there's so much to that. And uh, I think it's so important for young players to, and that's what kids today don't get enough of, which I'm sure we'll get into at some within this discussion, but, um, it's, it's lacking in, in a big way for, for our young players today. They don't have, um, those access to that unstructured play, which I'm sure we'll get into here. Totally. And I, I think that to, to simplify it into a specific example would be like hand-eye coordination. You know, I tell kids every single day, you should be juggling every single day at home, like go get three racquetballs. You can buy them at the dollar store and you should be juggling. And if you want to get good at tipping pucks out of the air, you don't start with tipping pucks out of the air. You start with hand-eye coordination drills, juggle two balls in one hand and do it with both hands, juggle three balls, try and bring in a fourth ball, maybe, maybe dribble a basketball in your right hand while you dribble a racquetball in your left hand, because they're going to bounce at different times. You're working on coordination. You're working on peripheral vision. You're working on timing. You're working on rhythm. You're working on all these things. That's your general. That's your base of the pyramid. Then as you go, then maybe you can throw, have someone throw a racquetball off the wall and you try and tip it with a PVC pipe. This is stuff I do in the gym with my guys. It's thinner. So it's going to be a little harder. And I do it with a blue wall and a blue racquetball. So it's really hard to find that ball bouncing off the wall. Well, now you go to the ice and the puck is black. The ice is white. Your stick, your stick blade is thicker. It's going to be easier to tip it because you've learned the general things that have to do with coordination, hand, eye, peripheral vision, all these things. So now that specific skill should be easier. So try to 
Wax, you know, wax on, wax off. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi. Hey, I tell the kids, I'm like, mop the floor. They're like, what's this teaching us? And I'm like, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that because uh, I was thinking about, because I'm going to have to do a lot of editing for this podcast just with all the stuff that we're doing. And I was thinking I'm going to have to Mr. Miyagi the crap out of this one. So I'm glad that he, he actually came up. But um, yeah. Kaner, to get back to your point on unstructured play, this is a great segue actually to uh, to the next clip that I wanted to play. And uh, yeah, so thanks for that. Here we go. So the skill development thing, so why is it you are you have better skill development in an unstructured situation than in a structured situation? I think it's I think it's partly because um, first of all, the game when you get to the elite level is is totally different, right? Like if we think of something like like tennis, in amateur tennis, 80-some percent of the points are scored based on keeping the ball in play until someone makes a mistake. And at the pro level, that totally switches. You have to proactively yeah. score. So it's a totally different game. And you have to be able to anticipate things in much more rapid manner. And you're processing in a way that's much more akin to language. So early on, you want exposure, but not this kind of drilling, repetitive. He says, you know, kids acquire language first. They acquire the sound first before you teach them the grammar. And I think that's similar with these sports skills. You want people to learn like a baby. You want them to be thrown in, immersed, because they're going to have to learn this stuff so that they have to execute it so quickly that it's unconscious. Right? Yeah. And, the, and the only way you do that is being thrown in, struggling, striving, you know, having to try to come up with stuff, as opposed to sort of learning these repetitive um, uh, procedures in a much more like explicit manner, which will not be fast enough to execute as the levels go up and will not be creative enough as the levels go up. Yeah. So like instead of, you know, if you go to Brazil, right, the kids aren't playing soccer, they're playing futsal on like a space this big that's on the sand and the ball is on cobblestones and it's bouncing in all these different ways. And so they're getting like six times as many anticipatory judgments that they have to make even when they don't make the ball, even when they don't have the ball per minute as like American kids in academies who are playing on full size fields. Right? France just won the World Cup overhauled their whole development system a few decades ago to they have about half as many games in elite French soccer player as an American will and they, this one of the guys who designed it has this phrase there's no remote control for the players the coaches aren't allowed to talk except for like these 15 minute like boxed moments and the kids have to do problem solving on like small fields so it's much more teaching them this physical problem solving instead of those closed skills you know and I mean you've written about this in youth basketball right if you want to teach people certain skills that everyone's going to learn later you can make sure to win at youth basketball but that doesn't actually develop the players in yeah. a very good way all right, so a lot to un unpack on this one for sure. And, you know, for everybody that kind of blasts the ADM and stuff, I mean, this is kind of some of the research that um, that they've done to, to kind of make what the ADM is. It's specifically at the youngest of ages and, and specifically in mites. Um, so, Kaner, a lot to unpack on that one, but I think it's a lot of really good stuff. So what were some of the things that you took out of that little clip? Well, you know, you can always kind of, you go back to yourself, right? Or your own experiences. So, you know, the way I felt like I really improved as a player, as a kid, you know, and it wasn't with me thinking, oh, I'm going to improve here. It's just, I'm having fun, right? Um, whether that was basketball or hockey. And I had a group of, and I think you played against one of them, Torn Del Forte, played a union, one of my best yep. friends growing up. We yep. had a group of six kids who would play roller hockey every day at this church parking lot. And, you know, we'd play for hours and hours and hours and it felt like it was 10 minutes, but we were there forever. And that was kind of our pond 
you know, sort of situation. And I just think about all of the little things we did and skills we learned. And I, I was never taught how to skate really. I never was, you know, taught how to stick handle. I just watched him. Like I'd watch touring cause he was really good. And I tried to mimic what he was doing. And, um, you know, I think today, and I'm guilty of it too. And I'm trying to adapt, involve my coaching to incorporate some of this research in a, in a practical way. You know, I think we're, we're very quick to t- tell kids, this is the way, this is the only way. And I think that can be kind of dangerous, especially if we're desiring to have creative, adaptable players at higher levels when it's always, you know, you're getting instruction from age five to you know, uh, 27 or 30, right. There, there's gotta be room and, and there's gotta be an opportunity for those players to be in a setting where there's no coach, there's no dad, and you can go and try things and feel co- confident that, you know, whatever happens, you know, your buddies might give you a hard time, but you're going to feel confident. You can try something and be creative. And, um, I think that's, that's a major issue, especially with today's society, where, you know, I, I lived in a really small town. I could ride my bike anywhere I wanted to. I could walk anywhere. My parents just kind of let me go and do my thing, you know. So today, like in, in North Shore, Chicago or St. Louis or Skinny Atlas, I, you know, uh, you know, it's not the same anymore, right? So we got we to figure out ways to provide that to players. And I think it's in practice. And I, I like what Roger Grill, kind of going back to his or going to his, uh, some of the things he said, you know, the, the, in practice, there needs to be this too. There needs to be an opportunity. And, and I like how he talked about hiding some of the kind of, you know, more boring or whatever you want to call it, skill work within fun things. You can do that. But there, it, you know, when I talked to my 07 team this year at CYA, we, we really tried to get them in the, 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 uh, environment didn't allow for this sometimes just, and we can get into that too. That's a whole other, um, conversation, but I would try to get them to, to think, you know, Hey, try different things. Don't, don't think just because we said this one thing one time that you, you don't have the green light to go and try to make a move or draw a couple guys to you then or, or something novel that we're, we're not even thinking about. I don't know everything. You know, I, there's, there's tons of movement solutions that these kids could come up with on their own, you know, without, you know, us guiding that all the time. So there needs to be space for that. That's where I think this is really important to talk about for young players need to be doing this on their own, or we need to be programming opportunities for them to do this. I think. Oh my God. That's so funny that you mentioned that specific, that last thing that you said. Um, so that, that even happens at the, the older levels too, because you know, we would tell if we were coaching kids, like, let's say we wanted to make an adjustment in a game. Let's say it was like, Hey, we need to get more shots on net. That doesn't mean every time you get over the blue line, you shoot at the net. <laughs> you know, like one of yeah. the things that we talked about was it's, um, oh, what's the word? It was, um, guidelines, not gospel. These are guidelines, yeah. not gospel, right? So if there's another play to be made, like we want you to play hockey, but these are just some things that we want to maybe emphasize, but we don't have to do it every time. And I think kids get a bad rap today because I feel like they almost, especially with the millennial generation, people think of them as like rebels and not really wanting to listen. When I think it's almost the exact opposite. Like these kids have been so structured their entire lives yep. um, from play dates. Like that's one of the things that Mark Dennehy, um, you know, talked to me about. He's like, Hey, did you ever have any play dates when you were younger? And I was like, uh, <laughs> no. 
He's like, has your daughter have play dates? And I was like, uh, yep. <laughs> you know, it's, everything is structured and scheduled and that's what these kids, that's like their comfort zone now. So it's a, like, it's tough for them to get outside of it. And when you tell them to do something, um, they, they're going to do it because it's within the structure that they know. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing too, that you talked about in terms of being in a small town and, and playing roller hockey, um, and you and I have had conversations about this caner is that when it comes to the 10,000 hour rule, like, I don't think it's necessarily, and, and Gladwell said this too, like, it's not the deliberate practice of skills of 10,000 hours. Like, maybe in golf, where you're doing a repetitive same thing all the time, or maybe like piano, it, it, it's a little bit more like that. But in hockey, when it's more anticipatory, read and react, like, I think my 10,000 hours, some of it was playing Sega Genesis NHL 93. Some of it was playing, (laughs) um, you know, in the driveway with my buddies or playing in the basement with my dad. You know, those kinds of quote unquote practice, like that was developing me from my passion development while I was also kind of playing hockey. But also, you know, playing football in the backyard because I was doing movement related activities that was going to translate to my Mm -hmm. hockey as well. So the 10,000 hour deliberate practice, which Gladwell is kind of walking away from the deliberate part, I think is what he's actually walking away from. But the practice part in terms of all the other things that you can do, that certainly goes to it. Um, kind of, what would you say to that? No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, um, you know, the, the research that Gladwell was referring to was Anders Ericsson, and I believe they looked at mostly musicians. Yeah. I don't know if there was any hockey players or um, basketball players. So it was, yeah, it was more isolated, um, you know, skill sets. And I would say even golf, you know, uh, I, when I listened to the podcast, I was kind of like, oh, golf's pretty, there's, there's a lot of variability and, you know, the swings are different. So I think even golf, you know, I don't even know if that would be, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who argue that that is also, that would be even more towards the hockey spectrum versus, you know, a musician, because there's a lot of different shots and a lot of different decisions and variability within that sport too, which, you know, I think is interesting and you can talk about that another time, but um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I think that's where the way we, you know, we need to get people to understand that's more of what you want and that's a healthier um, uh, amount of all of it. Right. It's not just, I'm going to skating lessons, you know, for 10,000 times. No, I'm going and playing knee hockey with my buddies. I'm playing pickup street hockey. I'm playing basketball. I'm, and, you know, all these sports have, you know, now the, I don't know if you've heard this yet, but there's a term called donor sports, you know, where you play these other sports to get better at your main sport, which again, I think it's, you know, I'm sure there's validity to it, but it's kind of, you know, to me, it's strange. You just let them play that fun. But, um, football to me is like such a great example. Like I just can think of, you know, weight shifts and movements where it, applied directly to hockey. So couldn't agree more with you. I, I really like that. And, and it reminds me of, um, I was talking to this high level trainer a few months ago here in St. Louis. Um, cause he's never trained hockey players and, um, his brother-in-law works for the blues and his, his nephew is a junior goalie that I trained. So he came in and watched what I do with them. And we started talking and, um, he's like, do you ever have your players shoot with the opposite hand? And I was like, no, but I've been talking about doing that for years and like having guys stick him. He's like, well, a lot of high level golfers now, however many times, if they're a right-handed golfer, if they swing the club a hundred times with their, you know, normally 
they're going to do it with their opposite hand. So left-handed a hundred times also in that day. And that's like, so non-traditional quote unquote thinking. And I guess that would be like not structured in terms of traditional thinking. But again, that's something like outside the box. It's going to make you better because you're going to keep your sides balanced. I remember looking at, um, a couple NHL players bodies. I was meeting with this uh, guy who runs this program. It's, it's a really unbelievable program. Um, and it takes a scan of your body every morning. And he had pictures of a couple of NHL all-stars. These guys have both been all-stars for years actually. And it was showing their bodies from the back and their spines were literally tilted and twisted towards the way that they shoot the puck. Like it was unbelievable. And that's probably because they were doing this idea of the 10,000. I got to shoot, you know, tons of pucks every night and I got to stick him. They're doing all this hockey stuff. Whereas if when they were younger, they had been moving around. And if um, I'm a left-handed shot, not only shooting left-handed shooting right-handed also, because even though you stink at it at first, you're going to get better at it. That's going to keep your body in balance. So doing something that's outside the box and not that traditional 10,000 hours thing will make you better. will make you balanced. will keep you healthy. will keep your spine healthy, which will then make you a better hockey player, have a better shot, all that stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. It kind of goes along with what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing too, that we kind of touched on it at the beginning, um, just kind of like the fun aspect of the unstructured play. Um, and, and just how much, you know, from the anticipatory skills and kind of figuring it out. I had somebody, um, after I put out my cost of AAA study, somebody from Madison got in touch with me and sent me this video of his organization. So they were having, um, trouble because they didn't have enough ice for the amount of teams that they had in their organization. So they were trying to figure out a way to get more ice and they ended up doing this community-based project where basically a ton of people volunteered and they built an outdoor rink in their parking lot. And so pretty much like they had one one practice probably I'm sure a week for each team was just like outside playing outdoor with like without even a coach. And so you're kind of taking away one of those structured practices almost. And I could be getting this wrong, but this is a gist of it and putting them on the unstructured. And he said that the development that, uh, um, the development that happened within the teams and within the players kind of like skyrocketed just from how, ha- and like they had teams that were winning that weren't winning before and, and things like that. So, um, I thought that was really interesting and kind of a part of it too, because I mean, we all talk about it and everybody that's older talks about how they learn playing hockey on the pond or on the lake or whatever it may be. And it's just, uh, it's, it's an aspect of development that's getting lost and it's an aspect of development that I think all three of us would agree is, is just so extremely important. Yeah. And, and, and most, most research is saying today that, you know, you develop your creativity, you know, in those earlier years, right. Once you hit 13, 14, right. It's a little bit harder to think divergently, like think differently about different things. Um, and you can develop that at older ages, but that prime age, you know, like from eight to, you know, 13 or eight to 12, Nine, seven to 12 is a very important time for young people to try to engage in that and, and feel comfortable to do it. Yeah, for sure. With that, this kind of goes along with the next thing that I wanted to talk about the next clip. And that's the importance of, uh, the anticipatory skills. Um, so, and then, then how to learn that. So here, I'm going to play this clip right now. Here we go. The great predictor of who makes the leap and who doesn't is not quality of your shots or your physical 
any, any aspect of your physical game. It is whether you can whether you can learn to adapt your game on the fly. When you when something's not working in the game, can you recognize you have to change? He's like some kids can, and some kids can't. And so he's identifying a kind of some kind of cognitive, emotional, psychological component. You said this tantalizing thing, that it turns out that golf is the least useful model. Why? What is it about golf that makes it... It's, it's, it's totally non-dynamic, right? You, you don't need to use any anticipatory skills, really, which are judging where bodies and balls are going in the future. Right? Like, everything in sports happens too fast for... Like, elite athletes don't have any faster than normal reaction speed. They actually have to learn how to process positions of objects in the field to see what's going to come next. Um, and so it just looks like they're, they're moving faster. And golf doesn't have any of those types of skills. So it doesn't use any of that type of psychological chunking. Um, it's basically, it, it's much more like an industrial um, task where you're trying to minimize deviation from a known perfect movement as much as possible. All right, so we go back to the golf a little bit on that one and how it's not necessarily, but Gaynor argues a little bit more that it is a little bit more like hockey. But, you know, just the anticipatory skills um, from having a diverse um, set of experiences, you know, talk to us a little bit about that, Gaynor, and and talk to us a little bit about what you believe in kind of what they were saying there. Uh, And just one thing I'll add, I don't think golf is like hockey, but I think there's a lot of decisions. I don't think there's any anticipation. (laughs) Yeah, 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 for sure. (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, they, they talk about, you know, with an anticipation kind of narrowing that down when you think about it, you know, you think about body cues, you think about tactical patterns and then, you know, and you can, and the elite, elite, elite players, you know, I think it was, uh, I think it was Adam Oates was on some podcasts. I heard him, I, I listened to. Um, he talked about how he gets upset when players go off sides. Um, and I, it just kind of, you know, it was, I kind of chuckled. Um, and I thought about Patrick Kane who literally has not, I don't, I think he went off sides once this year, but he had went like a number of games in a row without going off sides. I could be wrong on this, but hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm not, uh, I'm thinking of the right guy, but I'm pretty sure it was Kane or hadn't went off sides for a very long time. Um, and you know, he's kind of the example of someone who is on another level of anticipating the game, anticipating opponents, like individual body information and team tactical information. And then, you know, making decisions on the fly and such. But, you know, he, he's someone that can just read everyone so well. And, you know, if you were to ask him about it um, after a game or something, I'm sure he'd be able to give you some insight into you know, what he was thinking about in some of those cases, but I think a lot of them it's unconscious too, where he's just, he's seen it so many times. And that's where, you know, when people talk about developing anticipation from what I've studied, um, this guy, Gary Klein is actually really good. He's got some great books. Um, he studied firefighters, but when you talk about like body reading, like that can translate to other, you know, transfer from other sports, right? So, some of the weight shifts and things you see in football or basketball or, or lacrosse, you know, are going to be, you know, that information will be available to you in hockey. And then you get into more of the game specific patterns, which again, there's some crossover, but 
you know, the really great decision makers in hockey have had an, uh, an abundance of experience in that sport and situations and kind of can predict better than what, than other people, uh, than other opponents. Um, so in developing that, you know, it takes time. And that's why I think it's all, you know, when I think about, you know, hockey in general and just my, as I came up, there are a lot of players that, you know, and Tofi, you're kind of a good example too. You still were pretty dominant all the way up, but you know, you were smaller. Um, and I see kids today that are smaller, but think it better and potentially could, you know, if, if they were in a system that would, uh, would allow it, you know, they're going to thrive right at, at the 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 ages, where now they're a little bit smaller, but, and they get physically bumped out, you know, but they have the, uh, the perceptual and decision-making skills that will allow them to play at really high levels. Well, it's interesting and that think, you, you say know, that how, it's yeah. interesting. Let me cut you off real quick because it's interesting yeah, yeah. you say that because, um, you know, I've had this conversation with a couple of different people about Eric Lindros, right? And Eric Lindros got a, con- a ton of concussions, and a lot of his concussions happened when he had his head down and he got hit. And you think yep. about him, he was physically dominant all the way growing up. Like, he was always the biggest, strongest, fastest person. And so he didn't really have to think it as well as maybe some of the other guys because he can just basically physically bully his way into anything yeah. that he wanted to do. And so in a, in a sense, um, it, it almost hurt his, I mean, okay, this is Eric Lindros. He put up a point again, like, yes, he's a very, very smart hockey player, but there could maybe be, uh, an argument made that it almost hindered him a little bit in the sense that like, you know, he got hurt from concussions because his head was down because he wasn't learning those types of problem solving techniques that maybe a smaller guy would when he was younger, if that makes any sense. hundred percent. hundred percent. Um, and, and it, co- and it goes back to, and Kaner, you and I have talked about it. It's all problem solving. It's all problem solving. Like that's all sports are is you're solving problems at a very rapid rate at all times on the ice. And guys like Patrick Kane, Johnny Gaudreau, Sidney Crosby, you know, those guys can problem solve in, in an instant. And that's where it even comes back to the unstructured play where you're letting the kids problem solve on their own and figure the game out because you even said it earlier, if you have a coach that's always telling you how to problem solve, you're not going to be able to be creative, you know, and, and the coach could be telling you perfect things. Like in this situation, you need to be doing this and he could be a hundred percent correct, but the creativity gets kind of stifled when you're always being coached and you're not able to figure it out on your own. Uh, so in, in that development of those anticipatory skills, um, and we, I mean, it's just common sense, right? If you're being told what to do all the time, but like you can't make any decisions on your own and that's what problem solving is, right? Yep. And, and, and really deep learning comes from that because you're, you're having to think through it. You have to figure it out, right? And yeah, you're, sure. you're gonna, that stuff's going to stick a lot more than me. Or if I'm talking to you, talking, you told you got to do this, 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 and that. And you're like, yep, yep, yep. And then it's out to, you know, you're not thinking about it really. You didn't stew on it at all. It just was yelled at you or, or told to you. But if you're get asked a question or given a, a problem to solve, like you're talking about on the ice, you have to, you know, you, you got to figure it out. And that's, and that's how you're going to really, um, have something, uh, you know, last right. And be able to use it in the future. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. And it's a balance too, right? It's not like, Hey, like all times we need to let the kids go and not be coaches out there. So I feel like I need a disclaimer that because yeah. some people would probably be like, Oh, you just want them to go out and you know, do whatever they want all the time. Like, no, there's there, but there has to be, <laughs> there has to be a balance. I mean, you look at, you know, from the previous clip of what they were talking about with the French soccer and how they revamped their entire system and how they, you know, basically told the coaches, you only have a certain amount of time during a game where you can talk to the kids. Like you have to let them figure it out and you have to put them in small spaces and let them problem solve and stuff like that. So, uh, I I think it's, yeah, I like the anticipatory skills. I think it's, it's amazing. And and I even like think back to when I was playing hockey in the basement and looking at stick positioning and how do I get the ball around the stick and, you know, in the driveway and, and things like that. Like it's, it's very, very important. Well, I want to, I want to talk about like part of the ways to train that. Cause I know we have a lot of kids that listen to this and parents who want to help their kids and like old school, when I was coming up and you guys were coming up, I'm sure it was the same, like agility drills in the gym or out on the track or wherever on the field, it was like set patterns around cones. There's no thinking, there's no problem solving, there's no read and react. And when I see people still doing this stuff, yeah, every now and then, you know, you got to build the general base. Um, but like, that's not actually true agility. True agility is when you have to, you're running up to somebody and you got to read what they're doing and get around them or whatever. Right. So like when you're doing agility drills or or you want to have fun in the backyard with your kids, like make up games where it's read and react. Like one of my favorite ones, and it's super simple, instead of just shuffling between two cones, you know, that's just literally laterally shuffling. Great drill. Okay. There's no read and react. There's no, it's not hard to stop and start because you know where you're stopping, you know where you're starting. Now you take two kids and you put them two feet apart, but facing each other, you take two cones, put them 10 feet, 10 yards apart. And you say, okay, one of you is the leader. One of you is the follower leader. You have to only lateral shuffle and you got to try and get away from that follower follower. You got to try and mirror him. So stay face to face, stay directly on him. leader. You can stop, start shimmy, shake, whatever, but it's got to be laterally shuffling only. And the, and the follower, you have to go everywhere he goes and try and stick right on him. Now you've created true agility and true read and react, true problem solving, as opposed to, okay, I'm just going to go side to side for 30 seconds on 30 seconds off, whatever the drill is. Right. So like start thinking in terms of training that way, instead of just like cones and set patterns, because you're not actually teaching kids. They were cones. They were cones. (laughs) (laughs) You're not actually teaching kids how to problem solve, how to read and react, how to move uh, um, from a reaction, not off a set pattern, which is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, like all sports and specifically hockey, right? I mean, you have to think and move at the same time. So why not? do that when you're training. I mean, yeah, there's some merit to doing things where you don't have to think, you know, in terms of strength and agility and stuff. But if you can do both, I mean, that's, that makes a lot of sense, right? It's, yeah. just, it's just one part of the equation, right? You, you, all the decisions are made from what you see and then you decide what you're going to, what kind of movement you're going to do. So if you're just doing a movement and you're not providing that information to make the decision, you know, it's, yeah, I think it's, yeah, there is some value I'm sure, but I think it's much more fruitful to have that player you're going against and, you know, whether it's in the gym or on the ice, I think it's very important. Love it. 
Love it. All right, let's move on. Um, this next one is one that I think is going to be really interesting, um, specifically for, for kind of like youth hockey directors, coaches, and parents to hear. Um, and it has to do with the difference between how a game is played at the younger levels versus how it's kind of played at a, at an older elite kind of professional level. But I think it's really uh, an important part of what they debated. So um, here we go. I mean, one of the big points that I hear from you is that there is a qualitative difference, necessarily a qualitative difference, in the way that a sport is played at the age of 10 than in the way it is, than in the way it is played at an elite level at 22. And, and these kids, when they're being taught, like, it's a totally different game when they're, when they're that age. And so teaching them the adult skills, like this guy, Ian Yates, who's worked with this incredible range, for UK athletics, usually incredible range of world-class athletes, told me his biggest problem is people come to him and say, I want my kid doing what X gold medalist is doing right now, not what X gold medalist was doing when they were 13 years old. Right? And I think AAU is selling the ability to sort of advance that progression when all the evidence suggests, you know, maybe they're not harmful enough to ruin the kids who have really high potential, but but probably enough to deselect out people who would get to the top if they still had access to the pipeline. Like there's a great, a really interesting book about this, if anyone's interested, by this guy, Cy Ramo, who's better known as like the father of intercontinental ballistic missiles, um, called Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Player. And he makes this distinction. He says, because up until the very elite level, the game is dominated by errors, here's how you can win at the amateur level without being really very good. You know, At the elite level, I don't have as much for you because a lot more stuff goes into that. But he draws this like very scientific distinction saying the game is so different, I yeah. can give you these huge advantages at the amateur level that don't hold anymore at the elite level. And that's kind of what's being sold. I'll give you these advantages that, that work here, but they, they don't work and in fact in many ways inhibit performers later on. All right, boys, what do you think about that one? Do you want, do you want me to go first, Jeff, or you want to take it? I love your brain and you're way smarter than me. So I'm going to let you go first and I'll just piggy, I'll just piggyback off. I'm sure you sound intelligent. <laughs> well, yeah, I have two personal experiences that I think, you know, can kind of shed some light on this as a, as a squirt. And yeah, I guess it was mites and squirts. I, I played for my local team and my dad and I always chuckle about this because the coach would put me with the two worst players on the team and just say, don't, don't pass to them. Just, just go and skate the puck around everyone and score. So, you know, like in essence, I was building all these really bad habits like in these games, which oh. again, you, you try to work through them later on. But, um, so that was, which is hilarious. Um, I think now, but it certainly, you know, didn't get me to think about playing give and go hockey. It didn't, it didn't make me, you know, consider instead of just trying to go, which I was very good at. And that's what eventually led to my demise. I was crafty with the puck. I could go through one guy, two guys or one guy, and then try to do the second and the third and the fourth. That's not how you create offense at high levels. Right. So I should have been being told, Brian, you need to create two on ones. You need to create three on twos. You need to incorporate teammates in your face. You need to, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, and then, you know, my experience as a coach, seeing young kids come from our might system in the AAU model where they're playing a full sheet uh, as mites, you know, they just build a lot of really 
you know, they're not preparing themselves for sport hockey, let alone hockey at the higher levels. Uh, because if you, if you're the Eric Lindros of the group, you're going to score every time you touch the puck, it's going to be a breakaway. And how many breakaways do you see in the NHL or college? You know, not many, right? So the, the amount of interactions that these kids have on this big sheet as mites is just, it's not enough and they, they need to be, and that's where that, that game is just so much different than what they're going to see at U14, U16 and all the way up. So why aren't we trying to prepare them for that? And instead of, you know, letting them just try to, skate, be the fastest skater, which, you know, that's important, but you know, there's a lot more, uh, interactions they need to have. They're going to be more beneficial for their hockey sense and, and some of the things we've talked about. Um, so those are my two personal, uh, uh, examples, I guess, of, of that, you know, what they're talking about there. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense to me because growing up, I was always, uh, even my whole career, I was always, one of the fastest, if not the fastest guys on the ice. So like when I grew up, I played with Paul Stasny and basically Paul would get the puck and I would see Paul get the puck. So I would just skate as fast as I can somewhere on the ice. And then the next thing I know the pucks on my stick because Paul, he was disgusting. It would somehow hit me with a pass. And I, I scored like a million breakaways every year. And I look back now and I didn't like learn how to like do anything else, but I got really good at like breakaways and skating fast. <laughs> Honestly, so I think my first year of juniors, I really struggled when I got there because it was like, like defense is good now. Nobody's just getting, you know, you barely get any breakaways. So like, I love that point. And, you know, I think about some of the kids who develop earlier um, and, and, you know, go through puberty and stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe instead of just letting them fly around the ice and just beat everyone up the ice wide, like you said, teach them, okay, you know what? Every other time you have to do a Gretzky pull up even though you're beating that D man in practice, I don't care. I want you to be good for next year, not just this year. I want you to pull up, look around as you're pulling up and hit a late guy or do a crisscross with a guy like start, start forcing the coaches to force those Eric Lindros type players to work on everything else that will make them good next year. Not just what works right now. I love that. Well, even going deeper on that, like you guys have kind of hit on the individual side of it, but it also goes to the way that coaches coach too, right? You know, like, okay, kids don't need to learn a neutral zone four check. Like we didn't even really do it much in, in midget hockey. We taught them concepts, all right? You know, where's your stick? You know, be above guys, things like that. But like... And then when we did incorporate in the, when we get into, you know, some of the tournaments and some of the games that we actually wanted to win, you know, we, we were like, Hey, let's do a one, two, two, four check. And they did it perfectly. <laughs> it's like, it's not that hard yeah. to teach a system. Um, but teaching the little concepts and, 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 you know, when you teach a system to a kid at 11, 12, 13 years old, you're taking that problem solving out of their hands because you're now doing it for them. And yes, is that going to help win you games? Absolutely. Because, you know, like they said on the thing and even Bob Mancini, he said it when he was on our podcast a couple months ago, like it's going to force kids to make mistakes and kids make a lot of mistakes and then you capitalize on them. So when you play the system, you're going to win more games. Um, but are you preparing your kids for the next level? You know, probably not. I love that. I, I, I like to like use that example. You just said, like, say you're the first guy on the four check, 
you know, if you tell kids, turn them into robots, which they're going to have to be as they get older. I mean, hockey's starting to change from that robotic, like you must do this, but still saying juniors are going to be playing a one, two, two, whatever you tell them exactly where to be on the ice. They're not problem solving. But if you're in practice, take the time and say, okay, when the D-man has the puck here, you're the first guy. Where do you think you should be? Then have them answer. Where do you think your stick should be? Okay, where do you want to force that player to go as you being the first guy on the forecheck? Like, I want you to think, I want this guy to go with the puck where I want him to go and not allow him to go where he wants to go. Okay, well, little Johnny, how do you do that? I don't know, Jeff. You're smarter than me. Tell me. Johnny, you are correct. I am smarter than you. All right, so (laughs) put your stick in this lane. Does that make sense? Now it's going to force him to do what? Pass it back, right? So, like, do it that way rather than what you were saying, you know, okay, you got to stand here. Two two next guys, you got to stand here. Like, make them think about why they're doing it, how they can do it, and then let them try and do it on their own. Don't just be like, hey, be a robot, do this because it's going to help us turn the puck over and win games. That doesn't help them develop. Like, come on. Well, one of the things that you said, too, I think is really profound, and that's in your coaching, don't tell, ask. And Kane and I, we've talked about this too. And and like, I started to do it a lot more during the year this year, instead of being like, Hey, you need to do this in this situation. It's, Hey, what'd you see in that situation? Like, why did you make that decision? And then just like help them talk it through it. And where, and typically a lot of the times the kids actually come up with the answer that's correct. And so again, it goes back to problem solving. You're not solving their problems for them. They're solving their own problems. And they're that deep learning that you talk about is, is happening. And the kids, you know, they end up getting better. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's really fun. And that's where you create relationships too. Right. You know, I I think we're, we're starting to get away from that, the coach, the dictator, right? The kids want to have relationships with you. And that's the fun part too, right? You want to engage them. Hey, like, and yeah, like you said, Tov, I'm surprised all the time, but what I hear from eight, nine, 10 and, and all the way to, you know, the pro guys, like some of the things they'll, they'll come up with. I'm just like, okay, I didn't think about that. That's, that's really good. You know, like the, you these, are right. 10 year old. Are, I am wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to, and being okay with saying that to them too, you know? And so that gives them some, you know, they understand a little bit of humility too. They, I think that's so important that we're, we're talking with them and getting their opinion to, to a point, right. And to where it's not like you're out there for 10 minutes talking about something, but you know, giving them opportunities to engage. I love it. Awesome. I love and, it. and real quick, I want to add something to this too, because, and I would love to hear your guys' thoughts because you guys are both way more esteemed in the coaching world. I've only done it one year as far as ice hockey coaching, um, like with a real team. I don't know why I said ice hockey. Uh, obviously if I say hockey, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but anyways, um, I feel like so many people on, and this is social media, like, rip on coaches that talk on the ice. Maybe it's like two minutes, right? But like, and some of these practices that I've watched, like I feel like coaches think the kids have to be moving all the time. They got to be moving. They got to be moving. They got to be moving. And yes, ice is expensive. And yes, you want to get them moving. You want to get the most out of your ice. But if there's a genuine teaching moment, do you not think you should stop and talk about it? Or, or what are your thoughts? Like, because this was my first year of coaching. And for me, I was coaching 18 year olds and I saw a lot of stuff where they just like, I was like, they're just bad habits. And I wanted to be like, 
guys, like you're trying to go play juniors next year. This is your last shot. Like, let's focus on these things that we know are going to make you better. Like, do, don't stop doing them. We need to do these things that will guarantee to make you better. Like, like the little things, shoulder checking, talking, stick pressure, you know, and the, the, those are habits. And I wanted sometimes to just stop and be like, where's your stick, man? Like, come on, like make them realize it or talk to them about a drill. Like, this is what I saw. Not one of you guys shot in stride. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about why make them to think about it. But then I see online all the time. Like, why are kids standing around? This is ridiculous. They just need to be moving around all the time. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Gainer, you want to go for it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think, um, it's important that you, you, you choose the right times going and you provide value. I think where, what happens is it's extremes, right? You have the one end where it's the PlayStation coach where every single movement you're hearing something, you know, and then you have, you know, no coach, you know, like you'd be sitting on the bench and let them skate around. So I, I think, with anything you want to find your middle ground and, and, and where you feel like you can provide value. Um, I try to let things play out and then, you know, pull a kid aside. So we continue to let things evolve, you know, whatever's going on, they can continue to play or execute the, the exercise, whatever we're doing um, drill. And I can pull that kid aside and, Hey, what do you think of this? Kind of what Tof was saying, which I think is great. You know, like, what'd you see? why'd you make that decision? Okay. And it can't always be bad stuff. Cause that's, you know, it's, it's funny. Like I, I was talking to, I pulled a kid over the other day and, um, it was my, it was one of my first uh, sessions with him. Um, we were in a little small group and I said, Hey, you know, Johnny, come over here. And he like slunched his shoulders. And I was like, what, what, what's up with the body language? What, what's going on? He's like, well, what did I do wrong? I was like, you didn't do anything wrong. It's something great. <laughs> I'm just telling, I just wanted to, I was going to ask you what you thought you did. Right. And, and, it, and I think kids today just, and this goes into a number of different things, but answering your question, I think you got to choose the right times and it provide value and it can't always be bad stuff. It's got to be good stuff too. Love that. Yeah. Thank you. A hundred percent. And just to kind of go along with this, this is where I think coaching education is so, so, so unbelievably important is because, um, as a coach, like you have to have other coaches on the ice with you that, you know, can provide some kind of value, you know? So like, if you're the best, like, let's say you're the head coach and you probably know the most about hockey. And let's say you're the best teacher of your coaching staff. However, many people that may be, you should never blow a whistle. You should never blow a whistle. You should have somebody that's kind of like blowing the whistle for the reps and whatever drills that you're doing. And then as that head coach, you should always be almost after every rep of every drill going up to somebody, you know, individually and and doing your your coaching, if that makes any sense, right? Because I think kind of going along with what you were saying, Kaner, like that that feedback is is so important. And if the person who's doing a majority of the coaching is not providing any feedback and they're just blowing a whistle, then you're not really doing your kids a, a good service and they're not going to be learning a ton. So maybe you have like a volunteer dad that comes out and is blowing the whistles and knows when to blow the whistle and and you know keeping the flow of practice going. And then your coaches that, you know, 
kind of know the game or know what they want to get out of the kids and know what to teach, then they can do it on the more individual basis. And I totally agree with you that it can't be just <laughs> negative either. You know, you're not, when you're teaching, you're reinforcing positive things that they're doing and then correcting some of the negative things that they're doing. Um, so I don't know what you guys think about that, but I thought about that too, because, you know, my first year at Cornell as a, as an assistant coach, you know, I didn't know a ton of, I, I mean, obviously no hockey, but coach Schaefer had been doing it forever. Like he can literally sit there and, you know, correct or praise or whatever. Like he was a hawk, like he was a hawk seeing things that were being done on the ice. And I remember at some point being like, why is he blowing the whistle? Like I should be the one blowing the whistle because I'm not doing a ton of the teaching. Like he's doing a ton of the teaching. So I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but just I, it's something that I was thinking of. I mean, that makes total sense to me. <laughs> Hilarious. Yep. We're, we're identical. Uh, because this year <laughs> when the, the, my coaching staff, his name is Mike Barra, unbelievable guy. He's the head coach of the 18s. And I'm moving to the 16s with him this next year for AAA blues, because I loved coaching him with him so much is because we had that exact dynamic. I know the game more as far as like the little things, but he knows more about like how to structure practice. I mean, he's been coaching for years, right? 10 years probably. So he blows the whistle and he runs the practice. And then I, so I call him the macro. And then I said, look, I'll come in and I want to do the micro. I'll just float around the ice and just watch guys and then do exactly that, you know, positive reinforcement or say, Hey, I saw you do this. What do you think about trying this? So the whole year that was our system. He did ran it. He structured it. And I would just float around and be like, Hey, you know, Vinny, I saw you doing this. Why don't we try this? Hey, Riley, let's try this. You know, Hey, I, I don't know how you feel about this. Why don't you try this? So it's really funny that you said that, but that was like literally the exact system that we did the whole season. You make me feel good about myself. Thank you. I like you. it. I like it. It's what I'm here for, dude. It's what I'm here for. Um, all right. Do you guys got time for one more? No. Yep. <laughs> yes. Man. Works every time. Uh, okay. Uh, last one here. And this is, um, you know, typically when you talk about sports specialization, and, and Jeff, this is right up your alley, um, a lot of why people think it's not good is injuries. Um, overuse injuries and this gets into it, but it also has a couple other things that I think are important too. So um, here's the last clip that we'll show. One very quickly um, injuries. We haven't talked explicitly about it. We had talked about it, but it, that strikes me as being a huge part of this story since injuries are uh, the most significant limitation on the development of, of young athletes. And we do, am I correct, have evidence to suggest that this kind of early diversification is a, is a protector against particularly overuse injuries. Early and late diversification. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that the Cirque du Soleil data, I think, shows that as well as anything. But um, yes, I don't like to focus on that as much because I think when it comes to parents, they're not really concerned about the health message, honestly, more the skill development message. Yeah. But there is that, that data, right? So it's really interesting where in terms of a sort of growing epidemic of adult-style overuse injuries in youth athletes, like things that will affect their career forever um, or curtail their development, it's negatively correlated to family socioeconomic status. So this is like one of the few like health epidemics that hits people who are well off because those are the ones who can afford like all the travel teams and all the personalized coaches. Yeah. So it's like this incredibly perverse thing. And at the same time, we've seen this Canadian researcher, Jean Cote, who looks at where do elite athletes come from, has seen the, the odds of an elite athlete, of a, of a kid going to the pros 
are much increased if he comes from a smaller town and it's getting smaller and smaller because those are the places where they aren't, the competition isn't so hard when they're 12 that they're forced to specialize. So they're allowed to continue dabbling longer. So I think with the good intentions of speeding kids up, we've basically made sure that elite athletes don't tend to come from those places anymore where we you yeah. know, have the most available to them. And there's a protective effect and like a helpful match quality effect from Sam. That's super interesting. So the very, the impulse that the, that the uh, Little League parent has to quote, give their children the best opportunities, quote, to develop their ability may have a, the perverse effect of holding the child back. Totally. I mean, if your goal is to win the Little League World Series, then it's probably good. Yeah. Um, but if you're trying to make the best 20-year-old, it's not the same way as making the best 10-year-old. Yeah. All right, a lot to unpack on that one, but I think that one is, I mean, uh, oh my God, like I can probably, we can do an entire podcast episode on it, but, uh, you know, Jeff, why don't we start with you first, you know, what was kind of the biggest takeaway that you had from that one? Well, I immediately think of goalies when I think of this one, and I think of the rise of personal coaches and, and, um, all these kids that especially goalies because of the nature of the butterfly and what it does to your hips and dropping up and down on your knees and your hips and stuff. I feel like so many more young hockey players now that are good are their careers are ending because they need hip surgery because yes, they got better by doing all summer long goaltending clinics and, you know, one-on-one sessions with goalie coaches, but they're staying on the ice all summer now doing the butterfly thousands of times more a summer because they think it's helping them become better goalies, which maybe it is, but without proper strengthening and movement and staying off the ice to let your hips, your knees, your ankles recover, they aren't. And those overuse injuries are occurring. And you know, that's why you want to play other sports, cross training, working, you know, like if you're running, doing track or whatever, football, baseball, soccer, you're working the small muscles in your ankles, feet, calves, knees, hips, all this stuff, but in a different way than skating. So it's going to strengthen them without doing the same movement patterns over and over and over and over and over again, like we do on the ice, which is how you get overuse injuries. Kater, how about you, man? Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think it's a, it's a social, I think kind of, it's a nice, it kind of goes full circle to some of the stuff they talked about with Tiger Woods. I think people just think, you know, that's how I get better, you know, and to, to a point, yeah, you got to put in the time with what you, what you're um, passionate about. And, but you also have, I think the big thing um, from what Jeff said that just really resonated with me is recovery. There has to be recovery periods. And if you don't allow for that, whether you're doing hockey all year round or you're doing four sports, there has to be some time um, for your body to, to recover. And, you know, I see it, I think with, you know, mostly, you know, recently I've seen a lot of kids coming into the Bantam midget minor age who have, who have kind of been on this track and yeah, they have these injuries and it's, it sucks. Um, and I hate to see it. So I, I think it's really important that, you know, it's great that you guys are promoting this and trying to get this information out to people because I do think it's very important. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the big thing for me with that is, is recovery and, and, you know, no one wants their kids to have to deal with these things. Right. So if the knowledge base, and I hope we've talked about this, you know, the majority of the the parents that I deal with, you know, 99% of them are, are very affluent, smart, and good people, right? They don't want this for their kids, but they think that's what they need to do. And sometimes the kids think, so if we can educate them on and, and show them 
the the latest research on this and the, and the effects of some of this, I think they're going to make good decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to, I mean, just that point, what they said towards the end, and you referenced them earlier, the Cote study of like kind of where the you know, the elite athletes are almost coming from nowadays. And I mean, you just look at Minnesota, you know, how many of them, yeah. everybody knows like a ton of great players are coming from Minnesota, the world junior rosters and, and stuff like that. You know, where are they coming from? They're coming from small towns where they don't have to specialize right away. And Tommy Nimala, who we met at Ryan Hardy's thing, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but he was talking about in Finland, how in Helsinki it was kind of going more towards the, you know, specialized private rinks, kind of what we're seeing in America and how in the smaller towns, it, it still wasn't really like that. And he's the head coach of the Finnish national team and where are most of his kids coming from, you know, they're coming from the smaller towns you know, where it's, yeah. it's not as, as nuts as like both of you guys have alluded to. So, and, and I just, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, sometimes more is not better, you know, more is not better when it comes to, again, that deliberate practice, 10,000 hour rule. Um, and people who are affluent and people who do have the means, again, you, you're right. They just want what's best for their kids, but they're being educated that what's best for your kids is them playing year round and, you know, it being so competitive at such young of an age and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and in reality, it's, you know, it's not necessarily hurt or helping their kid. It, it might even be hurting them. And there's totally different development paths, right? Like you could have a kid that's special, like look at Tiger Woods, who specialized at six months old and he's the greatest golfer ever. Um, you know, and then you have a Roger Federer who specialized when he was 18, 19 years old in tennis and he's the greatest uh, tennis player ever. So there's different paths. And, and I think that's one of the things that gets, that gets lost too, is everybody's so quick to judge and everybody's so quick to pinpoint one way or the other is the best. And, you know, it's not necessarily true, but at the end of the day, as you've listened to all these clips and as you've listened to the researchers who have gone to different countries and have talked to people and have studied elite performers, yes, there are people that have specialized early that have gone on to do great things, but that's not the norm. That is not the norm. More people who have had a diverse set of experiences and learned things from playing other sports and having balance, more people are getting to the elite levels through that path than they are from the structured, um, you know, specialized path from such young of an age. And I think that's really, really important. And that's part of the reason I'm so glad that Mark Denny sent me this thing and, and so glad to have you on the podcast to talk about this is because you guys are very knowledgeable in this kind of thing. And, and I think it's so important for parents to, to hear it and, and Hey, like more is, you know, X does not necessarily mean getting better at X when you're doing X a million times, you know? Yeah. And I, and if I can add one thing to that, you know, as a coach, cause I know, and I, the parents want what's best for the, the, the child, the young adults, uh, we're, we're developing people, right? So hockey's just, just a, an outlet for that. And when you focus on just the hockey player, and not the person as well, right? We're, we're starting to go into uh, an area that I think is detrimental to the, to the kids, right? So yeah, and that's where these decisions and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. And if you're a coach, and we're all in the hockey business, like we all make money off of helping people get better at hockey or whatever, but like care about the person first, 
make the person better along with making them a better hockey player. Like how many of these kids are going to make a living playing hockey? I mean, obviously you're working with NHL guys, Brian, but like, I'm sure, you know, your younger guys, you know, still the odds are against them, but that doesn't mean like, you don't try. They're going to get better. They're learning all these life lessons through trying and failing and succeeding and failing. And that whole cyclical, um, uh, cycle of, you know, set up, set back, set up, set back and all these things and, and learning to deal with adversity. Like it's amazing, but don't just like rape people for their money. Put them on the ice 24 hours a day. Like that doesn't work. And you're not making them a better person. Like all that stuff, like coaches, first and foremost, we need to worry as far as shit, when you're dealing with children and minors, like we need to worry about developing them as human beings first in a specific way through hockey that will make them better people. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. And this is actually where the three of us ended our first conversation, but as we listened to the podcast episode and, and as we kind of thought about it, we thought it was important to get, a, get the three of us back on the phone uh, and talk about when to specialize and the ages to do it in because um, at the end of the day, a lot of what we discussed throughout the first conversation that we had is very relevant towards the younger ages. But there comes a time and there comes a place when kids do want to specialize and there comes a time and a place where more deliberate practice is um, is beneficial for the people that are trying to, to get to be the best at their sport and, and trying to get better. So um, we thought that it was important to get back on and, and talk about that. So um, Gladwell and Epstein actually do a little bit uh, of a conversation of it in their debate that they had at the uh, conference at MIT. So I'm going to play that clip really quick and then the three of us will discuss it. So here we go. So if you could choose, yeah. how late would you wait for specialization? Oh, I think probably mid-teen years at the earliest. Mid-teen years at the earliest. I mean, and that's just going based on the data when you see that crossover. And I don't know if that means that's when it's actually optimal or that's when you're getting toward like later in high school. But that's when I would do it. But I would continue if they could continuing them in like like the Cirque du Soleil. I mean, because those people are incredible athletes. Well, I mean, a lot of them were Olympic medalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're still continuing to diversify. All right, so there we go. So, um, you know, they touched on it in their debate as well. And I think the first question that I wanted to ask you guys was, you know, I specialized uh, for hockey when I got to high school. I was 14 years old, maybe 15 years old. That's when I um, I still did some other sports in the yard and, and playing, like, basketball in the driveway and, and things like that. But for the most part, I, I, I didn't play any serious sports after that. Um, and specialized right around then. Um, I don't know if that was right or not, but that's when I did it. Um, and the first question I wanted to ask you guys was, when did you guys specialize, and how did you feel it went when you did? Brian, why don't we start with you? Yeah, it was a similar progression for me, Topher. I was probably 14 or 15. I still played, you know, golf recreationally. I, I played um, pick up basketball, football, but nothing organized besides hockey at that point. So right heading into high school was the time I, I really focused on hockey. Jeff, how about you? Uh, for me, the last year I played baseball was sixth grade. So I was 12 about to turn 13 or I turned 13 right when I stopped playing. But really looking back, like, and I've said this to my parents and I've, you know, I said this my whole life, like I wish I would have started playing basketball in middle school 
because I think basketball is an unbelievable cross-training sport just because of, you know, you got to you gotta make passes. You got to have your head on a swivel. It's a lot of body control. It's a lot of acceleration, deceleration, a ton of hand-eye coordination. Um, you're playing a team sport, so there's a lot of, you know, working with your teammates and within systems and patterns and and then also like read and react. So like if, if I always tell people if I could do it again, I would have played – and for me, I always knew that hockey was what I wanted to do. So I would have used other sports as a way where I'd have fun, but not, I wouldn't have put pressure on myself. Like if I would have went back, I would have, you know, maybe had fun playing soccer in the yard and I played sports like in the yard and stuff, but not anything, you know, um, organized, but like looking back, even in high school, I would have played like intramural basketball, intramural volleyball. I actually signed up and played a little intramural volleyball while I was playing in college And I remember thinking like, I need to do other things to make myself a better athlete, right? Like I'm a good hockey player, but I wasn't great at being an athlete. And so I forced myself to do that out of my comfort zone. I don't even think I was supposed to, but, um, I joined a team and I had, first of all, I had an unbelievable time working on other skills that I thought would transfer over to hockey and just have fun being, being athletic and looking back, man, like I tell everybody, you know, if you know for sure hockey is what you want to do and you're really excelling around seventh, eighth, ninth grade, if you can get in intramural programs and like have fun with playing other sports and still like try, but know that, you know, your, your goal is to be better at hockey. I, I personally think that's a good idea. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense for sure. And even when you do like quote unquote specialize, like, only doing hockey isn't what's going to make you better, right? <laughs> exactly. So it's like even yep. when you do specialize, you still need to, you know, work out in the gym. And, you know, by becoming a better skater is not just by doing skating drills. It's by doing, you know, flexibility uh, away from the rink. It's by doing strength training outside the rink. It's by doing, you know, balance stuff outside the rink. Um, there's so many different aspects to it. Even shooting, like you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, Jeff, you know, shooting isn't just shooting pucks is going to make your shot better. You, know, you have to have a, a strength you have to have a hand-eye coordination uh type skill uh to, that goes along with it so um you know when you say specialize and you say deliberate practice you know sometimes that gets a little bit misconstrued um where you, you know you do need to do other things to get better at your sport like gladwell calls it doing x to get better at x you still need to be doing other things but you can focus your attention towards that one sport and getting better at that one sport, you know, towards those mid-teen years, as they said. And, and I, we studied this in my uh, master's program at Miami, and, and they said the same things. You know, around your mid-teen years is, is pretty much when they said if you want to be an elite, elite athlete at a certain level, that's kind of where if you do want to specialize. Again, it's not necessary, but if that's where you do, that's kind of the, the starting point of when to do it. Um, so I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. What are your thoughts on on kind of that age frame and, and where you think about that. Kaner, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think some of it has to do with your, you know, physical makeup too. When you hit your growth spurt yeah. and, um, and, you know, it's, yeah, so that to me that's a big part of it. Um, and, yeah, I, I tried to think when we, after our discussion the other day, I tried to think about other, you know, players I work with currently or, or played with or against um, and what some of their journeys were and, it does seem, at least in hockey, I think this is sport specific too. So I think certain sports, there's going to be different timelines, but hockey specifically, I do think, you know, if you're starting to really go all in your sophomore, junior year, or freshman year, um, with some intermeals sprinkled in, with some certainly 
strength conditioning component, um, I think that's you're probably going to be setting yourself up for some success. Yeah, what I do you think, Jeff? That. I love that. I would say that too. I would say, yeah, 16, 17 years old. And as long as you can keep playing intramural sports, like, and, and this is again for like the elite, the guys who are trying to go play juniors and like have a shot at it. And the guys who are trying to, you know, play in college, whether it's D3, D1, CIS, whatever it is. I mean, I think that, yeah, you should be intramural sports, but you definitely need to start really focusing on hockey. And another point to add to that too, is like, make it part of your workouts. Like, Every day, my guys, we warm up and I force them like, and they love it. Like we have to do hand, eye, foot, eye, body coordination drills. And so I have them juggle every day. I have them do different patterns with basketballs and racquetballs and throwing with their non-dominant hand, dominant hand, all these things that I think will make them a better athlete. And over the years, everybody has told me like, wow, like my hand, eye coordination is better. I'm tipping pucks, all this stuff. But like as simple as, so like I have groups of eight now when I'm training guys and this week, one day we played pickleball over a net with a bunch of guys. One day we played dodgeball. Uh, We played a game where um, actually Brian Gallivan out of Chicago who runs GVM performance. What's up, Gally? Absolutely love him. He works with a ton of pro hockey players, college and kids. He sent me a video of a wrestling warm up drill agility body control where two kids stand across from each other and the goal is to try and touch the guy in front of you's knee so you're it winds up being an absolute bagger i had to fill in because one of my guys uh couldn't make the workout so i had to do it and i, I it was a bagger it was like you're, you're trying to stop the guy from touching your knee you're shuffling you're moving forward you're moving backward up down changing levels and trying to touch your knee over a 30 second period and it's a super fun way to work on coordination agility body control accelerating decelerating, like all these things so you can do these things as part of your warm-up to get your get your body ready for working out while also working on other sports skills that will i think again be y translating to x which is hockey yeah, that's awesome. And uh, nice shout-out to Brian Galvan as well. He's That's uh, one of Kaner's boys. Works uh, a lot with the same uh, same guys in Chicago, and they sponsored a team together in the Chicago Pro League this summer. So, Oh, you were with that? Dude, that's awesome, Kaner. So yeah. I've, been talking, I've been talking to Galley, and we really want to get a group of my pro guys to come down, do beach workouts with his guys, and then play like a three-on-three tourney or something like my guys versus his guys. I think it'd be pretty super fun uh, to come down down for like a make it a whole weekend event with uh, GVN and, and ripped hockey. Yeah, no, Brian's a great guy and very knowledgeable. Uh, he's done a wonderful job with his athletes. So I'm, the last few summers I've been able to be, be uh, a part of that. And it's been great. Very fortunate. Very cool. Only bad thing is his brother, Pat, just a, no, just kidding. He was my limeated college. Absolutely <laughs> love Love the G baby. He was a phenomenal hockey player and a super intelligent guy. So love the whole Gallivan family. Was Pretty was cool. he your was he your Paul Stastny like um, after so, Paul dude, Stastny? Dude, my my <laughs> sophomore year, I had 19 goals in like 36 games in college hockey. Hilarious because I'm a meat, and uh, it was literally all because Shahura and Galley just saw the ice so well. Shahura is a KHL All Star like many times over. He's still in the KHL. Played over 100 games in the show, and they would just like do all like the fancy like smart stuff. And I would just be like, boys, I'm gonna go to the net. I'm gonna stay there. I'm gonna plant my ass there. Hit me in the stick, and let's score some goals. <laughs> so it was it was a great year, and I think I was I was second in the nation and shorties that year and my teammate mark letestu was first he had five and i had four but uh yeah it was really good playing with those skill guys patty i freaking love you buddy 
That's unreal. That's unreal. Well, Kander, let me ask you another question because this comes to the deliberate practice. You know, you do a lot of that type of work with your, you know, your pro college junior type players where you're putting them in certain situations that they're going to see in games. Uh, You're putting them in certain situations that they're going to see a lot, you know, depending on the type of player that, that they are. So, you know, when you think of deliberate practice and what Gladwell was talking about with the 10,000 hours and almost building that muscle memory and, you know, there's others, uh, other books that have been written and other studies where they talk about the myelin sheath and things like that. Um, What is your kind of thought on deliberate practice? How do you use that with the guys that you train and and how do you think that coaches can maybe use that whether it's an individual skill sessions or coaches can use that in a team setting as well yeah so uh, some of the definitions you know that i've read are it it, it kind of changes sometimes so the way i kind of i think about deliberate practice and things books i've read and things i've invested some time into is you know you're you're you have a good self-awareness of what you need to work on or you have a coach who is very aware of that next stage of your development and you're attacking whatever that is you know and not really diverting from it you're so you know if you're working on and i see it as very isolated in certain regards so if someone skating is is way behind you're spending a lot of time on that um and so i wouldn't say that my programming is you know we do try to um, incorporate, you know, based on the game analysis we do for players, we try to find that next step for them, but then we try to, you know, attack that, but then put them into situations, like you said, that are variable, then they're not blocked, right? So there's constantly different things they have to try to, problems they have to try to solve within those situations that they encounter, because as you guys know, your ability to adapt and kind of things we've been talking about is what's most important and you have to have a toolkit to give you that opportunity to, to solve some of those issues, those problems. So my, the way I would, uh, you know, within my program, I guess, if you were to call it deliberate practice would be, you know, finding some of those things that are holding the players back and attacking that, but then re-entering them into more of a, uh, a variable setting. So they have to, you know, see if they can pull it out of their toolbox without me telling them to, or, or without being prompted. And also, you know, making sure that that solution is the right one. It's not something we're trying to, you know, square peg round hole has to be the right for the player. Um, So that's where I would integrate, you know, I guess some more of that deliberate uh, practice uh, practices, excuse me, um, within, within our programming, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like for our listeners and by our listeners, I mean, Jeff and I as well. Um, do you have like an example that maybe you can use of one of the pro guys that you work with and maybe you do video analysis for that isn't giving away too many of, uh, of their secrets or anything of something that you see, um, that maybe you can use with them and, and create drills for them in the summer that can enhance their games. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking at Vinny Henestrosa, um, someone we've had the last few summers, great person, um, heck of an athlete. And, you know, one of the areas that we were seeing where he was getting stopped was his, you know, he's getting generating a lot of shot attempts in, in good areas, um, but wasn't getting much as much through as we would have liked. So we, you know, broke down some skills that he could work on within those situations and then put him in, you know, areas of the the rink where he was getting those and generating those and isolated some of the skill work and then put 
defenders against him in those areas where he had to adapt to where the stick was, read the body cues, and, and adjust on the fly, you know, versus just continual, isolated, you know, work, which, again, that's how we try, you know, we've had success with is transferring skill into games is, you know, making it representative of the game, you know. So spending some time on that issue isolated, but then moving it into an area where you really got to be uh, adjusting to what the defender's doing and what they're giving, um, and, and then creating some of those opportunities, you know, well beforehand you're even in that, you know, in that stage of about to shoot. So um, I guess that would be one example um, of Vinny. And he's, you know, and it's something he continues to work on, but we've started to really see some success with that this year. And, you know, we're really proud of that. Well, uh, that's, that's unbelievable. That's so cool. Uh, I have a question for you. So when you say you, you start isolating kind of on the, on the micro scale, then you move to the macro scale, more game, like, and you throw in defenders as a skills coach, who are these defenders? Like, do you have kids come out or do, are you defending and you put shin pads on or how, how would a skills coach who's, who's wanting to like do this with their players do that? Yeah. So, you know, some of the groups we have are, you know, four to six. Um, so, you know, it'll be other players or it'll be me. I'll throw shin pads on or one of my other coaches will engage in it. And we trust these guys, you know, most of the time to, to, to get in the way of it a little bit um, so they can start to pick up on some of those cues. There's always that one or two guys, though, that you get a little bit nervous, you know. Even even there's a few pro guys, you get a little bit nervous when they're coming on you and you're like, I'm going to take one in the toe at some point. I just know it. Yeah. <laughs> Bing! That would have been yeah. me in the group. <laughs> None of the goalies trust me. <laughs> That's so funny. No, there's certainly they will not. I will not name them on this, but we we have a few of those as well. That's so <laughs> funny. Well, Love when you when you talk about that, this is more for the coaches who are doing team stuff. One of the things that we started to do, um, and, and I think Shafe got this from. I think it was the Blackhawks actually. Is and Barry Smith is like when you'd be doing, let's say, whatever, a flow drill uh, where it ended off in a shot, and then you know another guy would be coming in to do a shot. You know, five ten seconds later what we started doing was whoever just shot the puck, they would have to stop in front of the net and then they would have to fake engage defensively the next person who was coming on the shot for that flow drill. So that person would have to change their angle, try to get around and shoot the puck. As soon as they shot the puck, they'd stop in front of the net, another good habit, and then they would engage the next guy that was coming down for that next shot in the flow drill. And we really thought that that helped. Like we saw it during the games that like our guys were – able to change their shot angle and find those little seams between the stick or around the stick or around the, uh, you know, around the feet to get the pucks on net. And uh, because again, it's the same, it's habit building, right? And that's what deliberate practice is good for. It's for, for habit building. And uh, it was something that we, we thought was, uh, was hugely beneficial for us. I love that. No question. To to piggyback on that, like, cause you know, I, I know what I did and what I tangibly saw work for me is me being a guy who once I went over to Europe and figured out like, Hey, well, to score goals, the puck's got to go to the net. So where should I go? And I was, I'll go stand in front of the net. And that's when I really started scoring way more goals. Every season is every single drill, 
didn't matter. Even if I was going to ruin the drill, I still did it. Shoot the puck, stop. I'd try and get my own rebound every time and put it in the net because, and we've talked about this on this podcast, for me mentally just always doing that, I feel like was just like rehearsing every time there's a rebound, go get it, get it back in the net as fast as you can. I think that helped me, but I always stopped and then I would turn and I would either screen for the next shot. And as soon as it came, I'd flip around and try and get that guy's rebound or I'd stand off to the side kind of like, um, you know, where like Ovechkin and Stamkos kind of stand off of that corner where if it goes off pad, you can try and one time it in. And I would just try and do that. And it was every, it, I never took a drill off. It was every single drill because for me, that's what I needed to do to keep practicing those skills that were relevant to my game playing in the five feet, you know, from the crease out. And that really, really, really helped me score a lot more goals. Like no doubt about it. I think that's one of the biggest things that I did is, is work on that micro skill. That was where I was always always standing when the puck is in the offensive zone. I was just, I'm going to the net and just doing it over and over and over in every single drill, every practice, every day. I got really good at it. And I literally, my coach would make fun of me, like, can you score anywhere that's not five feet away from the net? I'm like, well, as long as I'm scoring, who cares where, where I'm standing, you know? Like, so, you know, that deliberate practice and that thing Tope said, I mean, I love that idea. I'm going to steal that for next year well, and let tell me, the kids I made that up. Let me, let me, uh, <laughs> let me go a step further because, Jeff, I think you bring up a good point. And I, th- I think this is a question I'd love to ask you, Kaner. And that is, you know, when you talk about deliberate practice and you talk about working with your high-end players that you do, you know, are you focusing more on – their weaknesses when you do deliberate practice? Are you focusing more on their strengths when you're doing your deliberate drills with those guys? Or is it a balance? Like what would you kind of say you do with your guys? I would say it's a balance. Um, and it depends on the work we've done with them in season, um, or just, you know, what we do to prepare for the summer for them. You know, if there's a gap that that's a real weakness and we need to, and that's holding them back from being all the, you know, take them to that next level of their game, then certainly we're going to attack it. But, you know, I would say we also live in, you know, what is their identity and what do they do really well today and how can we keep maximizing that? Um, so I think, yeah, it's a little bit of a balance between the two. Yeah, and that's um, like we had Adam Nicholas on and, and Joe Gambardella, and that was something that they talked about a lot on, on their episode that they had with us. And that was, you know, Joe was not the best skater in the world And so he just wanted to work on skating, 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 and those kinds of things. And Adam was like, no, like, what's your asset? And let's leverage that. So for him, like you're talking about Kaner, like his asset was his compete level. So they worked at that too. Like he wanted to go from eight to 10 on compete and then maybe three to six on skating instead of going from like three to eight on skating and then losing the thing that made him who he was and made him really, really successful. So I totally agree with you that it it, it is a balance and then that identity piece of it and who you are as a player is extremely important. Let me, let me ask you this too. Let me ask you this too, Kenner, because I think this is a great question. And kids always ask me, you know, what was your warm up routine? What, what did you like to do before games? How did you get, you know, in that, in that state of flow, that, that good, you know, in the zone, so to speak. And since you work with so many extreme, you know, the best players in the world, do you have something that you tell them, Hey, like you should try this. It's, it's worked with other guys, or is there something that you tell guys for, for before the game? You know, hey, if you do this, you know, maybe so-and-so, such-and-such will feel better or something. Well, I, I think it all, you know, for me personally, once I was introduced, which we've talked about, 
you know, earlier on in, or in the other conversation we had, that inner game of tennis talked a lot about breathing and being in the moment. So I would do a lot of visualization and breathing um, my senior year, and that really was beneficial for me. And in-game breathing, you know, in between shifts. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, um, and I'm actually – investigating that a lot more now. And I, I met with a, a gentleman by the name of Pierre DeBar, who was here in Chicago, um, very knowledgeable in that, in that realm. Um, and I'm personally trying to learn a lot more, but what I've to this point in my knowledge base of this is, you know, certainly it's the thing we do the most each day. And if your breathing's off and I know as a player, when my breathing was off, you know, I, I was very tight. I wasn't able to get into that flow state. I wasn't able to be focused on the right things. Um, so I always talk about the guys in practice, you know, building those breathing habits and having a, a game plan for that. And each of them, you know, they bring different, you know, ideas to that table. But for me, it's in between shifts, making sure you're getting your heart rate down and, you know, within your shift, having a game plan and a habit base that's built in. So you're not thinking about it, but it's being activated. That, I mean, that is massive. I'm so glad you said that because, um, you know, we had Mike Boyle on the podcast, one of the earlier ones. If you haven't listened to that guys and girls, like definitely check that out. Cause I, I believe Mike Boyle is the best strength coach for hockey in the world. Um, and he literally, what you just said is exactly what he said. What do you do? I can't remember the number 10,000 to 15,000 times a day and no one knows the answer and it's breathing. So like, why wouldn't you start with the thing you're doing tens of thousands of times per day, like work on getting that more efficient, more effective. And exactly what you said is so true in between shifts. When your heart rate is just jacked up, the faster you can bring your heart rate down back to its baseline or or closer to getting, getting lower, you can go out there and work harder your next shift. If you come off and think about this for the guys who are playing and girls who are playing to listen to this. Think if you're out there for a minute, you're out there 45 seconds, you're busting your ass, you come off. And then the coach is like, oh, there's a power play, go back on. And your heart rate's still up. How hard is that next shift for you? Well, that's because your heart rate hasn't come down. You haven't been able to get your body back to ready to go on hundred percent again. So now you only have 20% to reach into your tank to give, as opposed to having 80 to hundred on your next shift. So what Brian said is massive. And one way that I work on that in the gym, cause you can work on that every single practice. When you get back to line, try and calm your mind, calm your body, breathe in your nose, pause out of your mouth, try and do diaph- diaphragmatic breathing, breathe from your stomach instead of your chest. And, and when you're in the gym, I have guys when we're doing our cardio stuff and even between sets, I say, close your eyes, breathe in your nose, long, deep breaths, force it, and then out of your mouth, nice and slow and controlled. And breathe from your stomach, breathe from your diaphragm. And if you're listening to this and you want to get better, Google diaphragmatic breathing and how to do this because it is massive and it will help you so much. That's awesome you said that, Brian. So so cool. Well, like breathing is literally what gives you life, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And what I tell the younger kids is soften your upper body. You know, you don't want to be so tight and constricted. You want to, you got to soften your shoulders. And the way you're going to do that is by getting some air into your, into your lungs. So that's, you know, the older guys will be a little bit more specific, but for the young kids, like you soften your upper body a little bit so you can make those moves and, you know, it's, or, or adjust on the fly when you're too tight and constricted. It's, it's really tough to play hockey that way. 
Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and we talked sure. about this TOEF with Adam. We were texting, I don't know, probably two months ago, maybe, maybe a month ago with Adam about how can we start teaching kids to breathe during a shift. Like if you're gliding in on the back check because you're right next to your checker or whatever, the guy you're marking, you know, like if you can somehow get your brain to focus on like breathing while you're still scanning the ice and doing that stuff, you know, you're going to be better. Obviously that is super elite and that is very hard to do, but it's a good idea of like starting to think like how, you know, like, like Brian said, how can we start to, to work this into the game so that you'll be able to play harder for longer and smarter. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing I want to add to that too is, you know, like even when we were kids, right? Like the word focus was always really, really big. You know, like the coach was always, you got to focus on the game. You got to focus. And I think that goes along with the conversation that we're having right now. And I think that's where the, the mindfulness and that's where the meditation comes in because what that does is it allows you to focus on just being in the moment which is something that is today, I mean, it's hard to do. I mean, with social media and with our phones and I mean, we have access to information in seconds when we want it. And there's so many different things that are going on around us that I feel like that's the hardest skill to learn nowadays is just to be able to focus. But that's what you got to do when you're playing at an elite level in a sport is you have to be able to focus on and be present and really give your all to the thing that's right in front of you, which is the problem that you have to solve in the shift that you're doing. Um, and you know, so I think that mindfulness meditation, um, is, I mean, that's something you can work on every day. It can be five minutes a day. It can be 10 minutes a day, but Jeff, I know you're a big believer in it. And, uh, from all the research that I've done, and I've been looking into this all the time now, because I I do like, I do it now and I feel like it's so beneficial. Um, it's something that, you know, when you talk about focus and being in the moment, you can train that and it doesn't take long, but it's something that you can do every single day. Well, Kaner touched on it with visualization. I mean, I think that's one of the, if you can go there in your mind, you can go there in your body, but if you're not going there in your mind, it's going to be a lot harder to get there consistently in your body. So it starts with the brain and you can be doing that at night before you go. I wouldn't do it before you go to bed, but you can do that at the rink before you go to practice or on the car ride on the way to practice before games. Like, you know, I saw, and this is, again, this is me coming from a guy who was like, okay, but I really did all these little things to make myself as good as I personally could be. Now, if all these kids who I know that I train, they're all way more skilled than me. So when they start doing all these things that they haven't done yet, they're just going to take their game to the next level. And for me before games, I would sit up in the stands. I would look down at the ice and I would literally see myself catching a breakout pass, getting my head up, finding my, you know, my kind of like a quarterback, you know, like our breakouts where, you know, one is you're going to do this one. You're going to hit the D man under one. You're going to go to the far side, whatever. And I would kind of go through my routes and then I would do the same thing for faceoffs every single dot on this faceoff dot. What do I do if I win? What do I do if I lose? And then I'd see myself literally going to where I was supposed to go, winning and losing on all the dots. Same thing with my kind of, you know, I guess, quote unquote, power play routes, penalty kill routes. And because I cared that much, it definitely helped me as opposed to the guys who didn't. But, uh, you know, I really like that you said that, Ken. It's, it's so massive. And I think that allows you to, to make those decisions quickly in games because you are rehearsing it mentally. And, you know, that's something that is very beneficial 
Um, and that's where, you know, we want to do that on the ice, but you also, yeah, you can, you can do it off the ice too, you know, and it's about being, being able to imagine some of those situations and how they're going to unfold. And that's, that kind of goes back to some of the things we talked about earlier, where who are the best players in the NHL there? They're, they predict the best, they anticipate the best. So you can, you can practice these things on your own, but you do have to do your homework and make sure that you are, you know, uh, imagining things that, you know, potentially could happen in the games like you were just talking about which i think is really important awesome yeah you bet all right well i'm gonna miyagi this again and uh <laughs> see see what we can do with the edit button here on uh on my computer but uh i i honestly think guys like i think this is gonna be one of the the, the most well-received podcasts that we've done we dive really really deep into a lot of different aspects on youth development i have a full two pages of notes from hearing you guys talk um so i i certainly learned a lot through this uh through this conversation that we had and uh Kaner, can't thank you enough for coming on here man not just once but twice and uh hopefully you're not dodging too much of that chicago traffic uh, on your way home from the rink right now i know how strenuous that can be but uh appreciate it man and uh this has been great thank you thanks for having me that was a lot of fun and you guys are doing a great job of this so thanks all right thank, thank thanks, you for brother. taking the time yeah all right take care guys take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Bye.